Okay, so we're going to continue in our uh, series through the seven churches of Revelation. So Revelation uh, 2 and 3, there are these seven letters. And um, we're reading these letters. They're written by the Apostle John um, in the first century to these churches that are in what's now Turkey. Back then we call it, it was called Asia Minor. And these letters are... Uh, written down by John, but they're actually letters from Jesus. So this is the beginning, part of the beginning of a vision uh, that John has in the book of Revelation. Now we're not going to do the whole book of Revelation, and I told you before I'm bummed about that, because I can't wait to teach the book of Revelation with you guys someday. It's my favorite book of the Bible. Um, But we're just going to read these letters, and so uh, we're going to continue that today. And remember, each of these letters um, sort of follows the... um, I should probably turn my little clicker on, huh? Each of these letters follows basically the same pattern. Uh, Not exactly, but this is what it looks like. And, you know, we start with the description of Christ, and then it moves into this is what's good about this church, and then here's what's bad about this church. And then Jesus says, here's the solution to solve what's bad about this church. Uh, And here's what's going to happen if you don't follow through and obey what I'm saying. And here's the promise if you do. And so almost every one of these letters follows roughly this same sequence. And there's a lot of similarities from letter to letter. Uh, But let me tell you real fast why I chose to do this series specifically. Um, Very soon with our partnership, uh, what we're going to be doing is planting this new church together called The Porch. And our last series was... Uh, What is the church? And we just talked about a sort of a theological series. Just what's the whole point of church? Well, here in this series, we're getting more of a sneak peek at uh, the letters that Jesus wrote to seven actual churches with real actual people in them. And uh, when we read the Bible, as you read through the Bible, there are two things you should do. And getting these confused is where a lot of Christians uh, make mistakes in interpreting the Bible. Uh, One thing you should do is you should look at the examples uh, there, you know, the Bible is filled with stories of people. The Bible is mostly narrative. And as you read these narratives, there's two different kinds. Some are examples that you should not follow. So think of people like King Saul or King Ahab or Samson, or even you have mixed characters where some things they do you should follow and others not, like uh, David when he killed that guy and then stole his wife, or Abraham when he lied to Pharaoh to protect his own skin. So we have some of these examples that you're not supposed to follow. And then there's other examples you read in the Bible that are very clearly there, even though we know, okay, this person was not sinless, but mostly what we read in their story is, We're supposed to follow their example. So think of the other side, like Abraham's faith, all the things we read about his faith. Or think of Joseph. There's not really anything wrong in the whole story of Joseph that we're told that he does wrong. Um, Or think of Paul sharing the faith at great risk on his missionary journeys. Or Peter and Cornelius, right? So some of these are examples to follow. And in these letters to the seven churches, we get both aspects of this. What are you supposed to do? What is a church supposed to look like? And what is a church not supposed to look like? So as we start this church together, uh, we're going to see things that we should be doing, and we're going to see things that we should be avoiding. Um, and so to recap, the first letter we read was to the church in Ephesus. Um, and this was the church that uh, had lost their first love. Then we read about the church in Smyrna, the church that suffered persecution. And that was one of those ones that most of the stuff in there, this is what we should be emulating. Um, Then we had Pergamum last week was the church with false prophets. Um, And if you remember, by the way, last week uh, we did the sermon first because I had to jump on my bike and head to Castro Valley to preach at 1015 uh, in the rain. And I told you I would update you. I did make it. No, I was 10 minutes late to that church. And I walked in the back and they were all freaking out, but it was still a lot of fun. So (laughs) thanks for letting me flip everything and do the whole crazy 
service schedule so I could jump on the motorcycle and get over there. But anyway, it was a lot of fun, and um, you know, it's a church, a bunch of buddies of mine. Anyway, so uh, last week we read the church in Pergamum, right? The church that put up with false prophets. And so now we have this church in Thyatira. So if you remember, the way that these churches are organized is uh, nothing theological or fancy. It's just they're in the order that you would drop them off if you were a mail carrier and you were walking along this big road that kind of went to all these different churches. And so our next city is Thyatira. It was a walled city about 40 miles uh, southeast of Pergamum. And uh, it was uh, in what's called the White Valley next to the Hermes River. So it was right next to this river. And of all the cities that we're going to read about, this was the smallest and least important of the seven cities, right? This is the daily city of uh, this little region, you know. Um, it was, but here's the thing. It was on an important trade route. And so unlike Pergamum or Smyrna, Thyatira, they had their religious stuff, but it wasn't a major religious center. So the first couple of cities that we've been reading about had these huge temples to these gods, and everybody would come from all over the ancient world to go to these temples. Well, uh, this city is, um, is not like that. I want to read to you here from uh, this quote uh, from this guy, William Hendrickson, who wrote a commentary on this. And he says this, Thyatira was an industrial center controlled by guilds. That is uh, they're like trade unions. And these guilds paid homage to the pagan gods Apollos and Artemis, also known as something else there. And they worshipped uh, at the shrine of Sabbath. Uh, members of the guild were obligated to attend festivals in honor of these gods, to eat the meals at the temples, and to indulge in sexual promiscuity. Noncompliance with these rules meant expulsion from the trade union, lack of employment, and poverty. So Christians who refused to honor pagan gods eat meat sacrificed to an idol and engage in sexual immorality jeopardized, um, jeopardized uh, their material necessities. They were regarded as outcasts in society. And so you see that the difference in this city was not the religious stuff. It was the economic stuff. So this was an economic powerhouse. And this city was run by these trade guilds or these trade unions. Now, as a part of that, to participate in those trade unions, you had to participate in their local idolatry and their gods and uh, visiting the temple prostitutes and all that sort of stuff. And the, the, they'd have these big sacrifices, these big giant – basically, they'd have these big giant parties like – uh, kind of like our version here of like the Folsom Street Fair or something. And if you didn't participate in it, you couldn't be a part of uh, the business uh, in the city. And so we actually meet um, somebody in the book of Acts. Um, we meet her in the city of Philippi, but um, there's a lady named Lydia who's a big part of the New Testament. Um, she was a businesswoman, and, so do, and she's originally from this city. And so it makes sense uh, that you know we, we see her described as a businesswoman later on. So let's read the letter then. Uh, it starts in verse 18. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, right? So uh, remember, we start with our description of Jesus. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So it's really easy as you read through the New Testament to just skip over the phrase, the Son of God. Because we see this phrase constantly, and uh, it's, it's so easy just to gloss over it. But the folks in the ancient world, anybody reading that phrase would have realized what a big deal that is. That is a big claim to call Jesus the Son of God. It's one of the reasons that uh, the Sanhedrin killed Jesus, right? Because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, you see... In one sense, we are all children of God. You know, the belie us believers are all children of God. We're adopted into his family. But Jesus Christ is the son of God in a unique and a very special way. Um, one of the most important chapters in the Bible is 2 Samuel 7. 
And what happens is David, King David, is sitting in his house one day, and he looks outside, and he's looking, he's thinking about how fancy his house is and how nice. He lives up in Pack Heights, you know. And he looks down, and he realizes, oh, man, God is living in a tent in the tenderloin. This isn't fair, right? I'm living in Pack Heights. I've got it all. And God's house is just this tent. And he says, you know what? So I'm going to build God a new house. So he says to the prophet, go tell God I'm going to build him a house. And so the prophet comes back and says, hey, God says thanks, but no thanks. Because you're a man of war, he's going to let your son build the house. But because you promised, it's sort of this play on words. Because you promised to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. But what God meant by that was not like an actual physical house, but like a dynasty. And what he says is that from that dynasty of David will come uh, somebody who God, in that chapter, God says, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. So this is the, one of the promises that King Jesus will come through the line of David. And God specifically says in that chapter that he's not just going to be one of these normal kings, right? He's going to be the very son of God. And that imagery is picked up in Psalm 2-7. Uh, psalm 2 is another one of these like royal psalms. And it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So again, this imagery of the son, or if you jump forward in the Bible to the book of Mark, uh, at Jesus's baptism, right? You know the story, John baptizes Jesus, drops him down in the water and picks him up. And then all of a sudden uh, it says in Mark 1:11, a voice from heaven uh, saying, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. And so you see in the ancient world, here's the thing. It was very common for the emperors to call themselves the sons of God. It was on different coins, I think I read. Uh, it was the phrase that these emperors used. And so this, what Jesus is describing himself here, is a direct challenge to the idea that the emperor was God. And what he says is, they think they're God, but I actually am. I am the true son of God, right? The man Christ Jesus is the true son of God. And we see that uh, in these next two things he uses to describe himself. The first thing he says, I have eyes like a flame of fire. Now, again, remember, we're reading the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation... The book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. What that means is that most of the stuff in here is symbolic for something else, and you see it in the Old Testament, and you, need the, you don't want to read this literally. Like, I've seen those paintings and stuff where Jesus is coming, uh, in the second coming, and he's got a sword shooting out of his mouth, and his eyes are fire. You know, like something a first grader would draw uh, in uh, art class or something. You know, I got... Uh, flames shooting out of my eyes. Uh, so that's not what's going on here. This imagery comes again from Revelation 1.14. It's picked up in Revelation 19 when Jesus returns and says his eyes are like flames of fire. I'll explain it in a sec. The second thing it says is his feet are like burnished bronze. Now, uh, in Revelation, there's this imagery. In Revelation 19, there's this imagery of Jesus. It says he crushes his enemies in the wine press. I forget the exact phrase. The wine press of the wrath of the Lord or something. And the idea is... If you've ever made wine, which I haven't, even though my mom owns a winery, I still haven't participated at all. Uh, you put all the grapes in a thing, and then you, I love Lucy, take your shoes off. You guys remember that episode, you know? And uh, her and uh, what's-her-face from upstairs are stomping on the grapes, and it just crushes the grapes, and the juice squeezes out the back. And everybody in the ancient world knew this. And Jesus used this imagery uh, to say in Revelation 19, um, I'm going to throw my enemies in the wine press like that, and I'm going to stomp them. And, but instead of grape juice coming out, blood is going to seep out. This It's a pretty brutal image, what Jesus says there. And the idea is that God, Jesus, 
uh, you know, as the son of God is going to bring his wrath to the world in his second coming and he's going to judge his enemies. And so uh, burnished bronze is, uh, represents purity. And so his judgment will be pure. And the eyes of fire is a kind of a way to say like he sees everything. And then the second half is and he's going to judge everything that goes wrong. And so this is a very lofty image that's presented here of Jesus, right? He is the very son of God who's going to come back and he is going to judge um, the world. So that's the image of Jesus. Let's see now what um, uh, the letter, the rest of the letter says. He starts with, here's what's good about this church. He says, look, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. So again, Jesus says, I know your works. Again, Jesus sees everything with his eyes of fire. Uh, there are a lot of churches out there and a lot of Christians out there who care way too much what everybody else thinks about them. And it's not bad to be concerned about our own reputation, right? You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But if we're so concerned about that at the cost of forgetting who we really serve, that's when we start to get into some trouble, right? The most important thing that we can do as a church, as I'm talking about good examples and bad examples, as we're looking forward uh, to planting this new church together, the most important thing that we can remember is it really matters what our King Jesus thinks about us, right? Every one of our works, good or bad, Jesus knows it. He knows what we're up to. He knows the motivations of our heart, of why we're doing the things we do, right? And so that's the other level here. Remember, Thyatira was the least important of all the cities that got these seven letters. So imagine you're in Thyatira and you're reading this and you're like, oh, to the church in San Francisco and to the church in Sacramento and Oakland. Oh, and to the church in Daly City or Colma or wherever you're from. And Jesus says, I know what you're up to. That's an important thing. Think about how awesome that is. The true son of God, the creator of the universe, right? The Lord of all, he knows what you're up to, even if you're not that important. And this speaks great deal, I think, to our little church plant, right? Because we're not going to be the most important church plant in San Francisco. We're not going to be the biggest church. I'm not going to write any books that make it on a bestseller list. Most of what we do is we're going to try to impact our little corner of San Francisco. We're going to try to impact our neighbors around where we live. But I don't think anybody over time is going to look at us and go, wow, that's amazing, uh, we should write a bunch of books about what's happening there and we should put them on the Gospel Coalition podcast. And you know, it's probably just not going to happen. And you know what? That's okay, right? Because the reason to start churches is not to impress Christians in other parts of the country, right? That's not what we're doing here. Uh, the reason to start a church, even small and unimportant churches, with the kind of stuff that we're doing is to take the gospel to the people around us and to our neighbors. And so I would rather make a little impact here and have our name get big in other places in the country. I don't, we don't really care about that. That's not what we're doing here. And so it's amazing for us to look at this and to hear Jesus say, hey guys, I know your works. Even if you're that little church that not everybody's writing books about, it doesn't matter. You know, Jesus knows what we're up to and he knows our heart. And so um, what we're going to do is we're going to spend all of our time trying to love the people around us and to serve the people around us and to take the gospel. And so that's how we do it. Look, at, it's what it says here. What are their works? He describes it, right? First, he says that they have love. And we've talked about this in the chapter, uh, in the letter to the Ephesian church. We talked about love, right? This is love for God. This is love for each other. This is love for the people outside the community. And this church did that really well, which is awesome. One of those examples we should emulate. It says also that they had faith. Now, faith is not just believing something with no reason to believe it. That's kind of the way we use the word faith. Just take it on faith, even if you know it doesn't make any sense to you. Um, at some point, I'm going to do a whole sermon or maybe a whole sermon series and just talk about faith. Uh, here, though, I actually think the word 
in other translations, and it could be translated, uh, your faithfulness, right? Uh, you know what you believe, and you stay faithful to the gospel, right? You're staying faithful to serve your king no matter what it costs you. And then the third thing is uh, service. So remember, in the book of Revelation, in these two chapters in Revelation, at the end of each of these letters, it says, and here's the promise to those who conquer. But the idea with conquering here, again, is not conquering in power and winning. It's conquering through love and through service. And so this is what this church has been doing. They have been staying faithful to God and serving the people around them as this evil world system of Babylon has been trying to crush them and stomp out their little church. But living like that, again, is not easy. Living in this world of Babylon is very hard. And that's why at the end here he says you have patient endurance, right? Hope uh, creates this patient endurance. The only way through living through this idea of Babylon where there's this just wicked, evil world system of injustice and oppression that's out there. And the only way to live through that and to serve and to love is to understand that we win. That's the book of Revelation, right? We get the end of the story. And that gives us a lot of hope. And so this church in Thyatira did that. And what it says is that their latter works exceeded the first. This is really cool. He basically says each one of these was better than the last. You guys are continuing to grow in all of these areas. And that's awesome, right? This church is not stagnant. It's not just standing still, right? And so that's the good. It's a pretty good, it's a pretty awesome, you know, a commendation from Jesus. But, like I said, all these churches follow the pattern. The next thing is, but there's a negative here. Um, so all but two churches have negatives. Uh, he says, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So, uh, let's talk about Jezebel for a sec. Last week, if you were here, we talked about what's biblical typo- what we call biblical typology. And the idea with biblical typology is that there are things, because God is sovereign over all of history, he's guided history to teach people later on using history in, the old, like, uh, in older times. And so there are events and people and places and things that are small pictures of something bigger that comes later. And so the example I gave you was the Passover. One of the examples was Passover lamb is a great example of typology where, Jesus, um, where God says, look uh, to the people in um, Egypt during the Exodus. Hey, I need you to take a lamb and I need you to kill it and then take the blood of the lamb and paint it on your doorposts. And if you do this, when the angel of death comes through on this 10th plague, he'll pass over your house, and which is a really wonderful story. But ultimately, it was meant to teach the people about the, the ultimate Passover lamb that was coming later. It's why John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, uh, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everybody knew what that meant is what Jesus, what the Passover lamb did on a small scale, Jesus did on a huge scale. So that's what we call biblical typology, right? Now, last week we talked about Balaam and the typology of Balaam and how he was the ultimate false prophet. Today we have a new character. Her name is Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, uh, from the book of uh, Second Kings, or First Kings, end of First Kings, she's in Chronicles, uh, was the, wi- uh, the wife of the wicked king uh, of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. His name was Ahab. And she was awful. And if you read her whole story, yeah, there it is. I wrote it down. Go to 1 Kings uh, 16 through 20. And this woman was the arch nemesis of the prophet Elijah. And so her big contribution to the story was how much she encouraged uh, Baal worship among the people of God. 
And uh, she had all these uh, prophets of Baal, or it's actually pronounced Baal, but that's weird to say, right? So Baal. Um, she had all these prophets of Baal, and they had the big standoff with Elijah, you know, up on the mountain, where they put two bulls uh, on the altars, and, you know, they say, whichever of our gods consumes this sacrifice, you know, is the real god. And uh, so the, he, Elijah says, you guys get to go first, and all the Baal guys are doing all these crazy rituals, and they're cutting themselves and all this stuff. And Elijah's standing there making fun of him. Wow, oh, maybe, you know, maybe your God's still on the toilet. Let's give him a few minutes. You know? He's being like super, I love that story, being super sarcastic. And then um, what happens is uh, after a while they can't do it, and so Elijah goes, all right, fine. Let's pour a bunch of water on mine so you know that when it's consumed by fire, it really is Yahweh God. And so then God consumes the sacrifice and Elijah has all the prophets of Baal executed. It's a whole thing. Well, anyway, when that happens, uh, Jezebel gets real mad, and she tries to have Elijah killed, and she chases him kind of around the desert. Um, eventually, the end of the story is Elijah's taken up into heaven, and a little later on, um, just like there's a prophecy, Jezebel is killed, and her body is eaten by dogs, right, to fulfill that prophecy, And which in the ancient world was basically the worst thing that you could have happen to you, is to not have a proper burial. Now, so that's Jezebel in the story. Jezebel in Thyatira then. There's typology here. So imagine for a second that I was angry with somebody and I called them Hitler. You all would know exactly what I was talking about because we all know who Hitler was. Or imagine that I was describing one of my friends and you're asking me, well, why isn't he your friend anymore? I was like, well, because he's a Judas. You would know exactly what I was talking about. Somehow he betrayed me. Well, that same idea here. Jezebel is one of these that is actually stuck around to our times too, sort of. Not a lot of people use it, but every now and again you'll hear some old guy call somebody a Jezebel, you know. Uh, and what it means, um, uh, everybody in the ancient world would have known what that meant, right? It's a wicked woman who led people into idolatry and away from the worship of Yahweh. And so uh, the woman in Thyatira wasn't literally named Jezebel. I don't know what was her name, you know. Jane or something, I don't, you know, whatever her name was. Uh, but he, he calls her a Jezebel because she's just like Jezebel. She's leading the people away from, is there Jane here? Somebody Jane? Yeah. I always just pick a name. There was one sermon. I forget. I, was, I, I kept bragging on some guy named Peter or something. And then, you know, some guy comes out, I'm Peter, you know. I was like, oh, I was just made up. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, so this woman is leading people away from God and into idolatry, right? And here's the thing. She calls herself... Hold on a sec. Every week I step on this for the whole sermon. Drive me nuts. I'm just going to put that over there for a little bit so I could put my foot up. Ah, look at that. Look at all this room for activities. All right, what was I saying? Something about Jesus? Oh, yeah. Okay, so here we go. So this woman calls herself a prophetess, which uh, without getting into all the details of the, the book of Revelation... I believe when we're talking about the tribulation, what we're talking about is from the time when the church started all the way until when Jesus comes back. There's not like a seven, maybe it gets worse at the end, but the whole church age is this idea of tribulation where the church is fighting through this wicked system of Babylon. And in describing the church age in Matthew 24, Jesus says, in describing the tribulation, what Jesus says is that many false prophets are going to rise up and try to deceive the people of God. And a prophet is somebody who claims to speak for God, the mouthpiece of God. And that's what this woman was claiming. She's fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus, where he said a lot of these false prophets are going to pop up. She's one of these people. And look at what she was doing. She was teaching and seducing the servants. Now, I have a tattoo on my arm. I have a couple. This one's the Starship Enterprise. Uh, this arm is the verse from James 3.1. And this is what it says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, 
For you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Right? Being a teacher of the Bible, a, you know, a leader of the church of God is a pretty big deal. And it's something that what my verse on my arm says should never be taken lightly. And so this Jezebel here was way off. And this is what she was teaching. Uh, in these Roman cults, part of these guilds, they had, like I said, these big parties and all this stuff where you had to participate in this pagan religion that involved temple prostitution, eating meat sacrificed to idols, uh, to be a part of the guild. And going to these parties was a regular part of their religion. And so uh, the, you can see the temptation then that was facing this church to participate in business and to provide for your family meant worshiping false gods and turning your back on King Jesus. So the choice was probably something like poverty in Jesus or money and idolatry. You had to choose those two. And so what, this, what they wanted was somebody to come in and tell them that they could have their cake and eat it too. right? They wanted somebody who could come in and tell them, oh, you can follow Jesus and you can participate in this temple prostitution and eating this meat that sacrificed idols and participating in uh, this false religion. Um, the only real kind of example that I could think of from our culture, and it's not even anywhere near the same, is imagine living in, like somewhere like Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, where actually I, it's not that far off. I have a friend who kind of was dealing with this, right? And if you're not a Mormon, then nobody goes to your 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 business, right? And it's it's kind of the same thing. Well, imagine somebody there being told by his pastor, "Oh, Mormonism is basically the same thing as evangelical Christianity. Don't worry about it." That's what this woman was doing here. And here's the thing. The sin was not just hers. There were people who were following her. And this teaching was tolerated, it says, uh, by the people in this church. That means the pastors did not throw her out. The people invited her to teach Sunday school. She was a part of the life of the church teaching this wicked idolatry. Uh, Tom Schreiner, who's an author, he said their love describing this. He said their love had turned... I think I have a slide for this. Yeah, their love had turned to permissiveness, allowing a false prophet to exercise pernicious influence in their midst. They were letting this lady teach and stuff, and Jesus was not having it. And so what he says is, um, he says right there, uh, I gave her time to repent, but she's not going to. And so he gave her time, and now that her time is over, she has refused to repent. What's Jesus going to do? Uh, he's going to drop the hammer. Look at verse 22. He says, Behold, I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So he says, Look, I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed. Now, first of all, this is one of the best verses in the Bible, because I think this is Jesus sort of being a little bit... Uh, sarcastic, uh, because it's sort of a play on words. What he says is she's encouraging uh, people to spend time in a bed in this cult prostitution stuff. And so Jesus says, you want a bed? Okay, I'm going to give you a bed, but not the kind of bed you want. You want this other bed? I'm going to give you this sick bed. Now, remember that we live in a world of doctors who do absolutely amazing things, right? Like I was just talking to somebody about this. Have you ever have you ever really thought about it, that at one point in human history, some dude was like, you know what, I'm going to cut this guy's head open, and I'm going to mess with his brain, and then I'm going to put his head back on, and I think I can fix it. 
right? Somebody had the guts to do that, and then they did it, and it worked, right? We live in an amazing age of medicine. Well, back then in the ancient world, they didn't have medicine like this. Uh, you know, they're throwing leeches on people and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, they didn't know what was going on. And so if you got sick in the ancient world, it was absolutely terrifying. There's no antibiotics. There's no, there's no real medicine. And so the, the, the mortality rate was so high, and you were constantly watching the people around you get sick and die. The truth is that most of us in this room have had diseases that may have killed us if it was not for modern medicine. At one point, a really bad flu or different things, right? And so imagine if we didn't have that. You can imagine how uh, afraid of getting sick you would be. And so uh, that's what he says. I'm going to throw her into this sick bed. Now, is he using imagery? Is he literally going to make her sick? Let's not jump to, oh, Jesus would never do that. Because we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five maybe uh and where he says uh i didn't look it up uh he says you know there's this couple and they lie to peter and they lie to the holy spirit and both of them are, are stricken dead in front of the whole church so let's maybe he is jesus says i'm gonna get um, you're actually gonna face this judgment in this life and i'm gonna make you sick maybe it's just a way to say i'm gonna there's gonna be some other sort of judgment i don't know but he says look it's not just you it's everybody that commits uh, this spiritual adultery with you. I'm gonna, I'm a, you know, they're all going to be stricken dead, right? So she had these followers, these helpers, and they're not going to be able to hide behind some sort of excuse. Well, she was the leader. I didn't know. I didn't really know. Uh, Jesus says they're just as responsible for all of this as she is. And so do you see the, what's the point then of this judgment? He says, so that all the churches, I like this, well, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Do you catch that? It's not so that the people outside the church will know who Jesus really is. He says it's so the people inside the church. Well, don't they already know that? Right? Some of these people are following Jesus in pretty extreme circumstances. But from the, from the reading of these letters, on one level, yes, they know it. But on another level, they don't. And so Jesus is saying what's really important here is that you guys actually worship me. Not this other stuff and don't fall into this idolatry. And then there's this weird phrase here at the end where he says, I'm going to give each one of you according to your works. Uh, one author says this. He says, look, works can't save you, but they can damn you. And what he means by that is uh, we're, we should never think that we can earn our way into heaven. But when we think about works, we can earn our way into hell, right? Uh, everybody who was, uh, will be judged and sent to hell is not going to be complaining that I didn't deserve this. They're going to say this is exactly what I lived, how I lived, and what I deserve. But because of the grace of God, some people are going to be able to repent. And that's what is called for here. He says, look, and the rest of you, she's not going to repent, Jesus says. She's already done. She's already decided. But the rest of you, it's still up for grabs. Maybe you should be repenting, right? She missed her opportunity, but you, you guys, you followers, you can escape her judgment. It's not too late for you to be saved by grace. So even in this harsh letter of judgment where he says, I'm going to throw you into this sickbed and anybody that follows you, I'm going to kill them, right? This is harsh stuff. There's still this wonderful truth about the grace of Jesus. And then moving on then, so it's not all bad for the church, right? That's what's the sort of the solution, the challenge. He says, but to the rest of you in Tyre, uh, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned that, uh, what some call the deep things of Satan, to you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast uh, what you have until I come. So he says, look, to the rest of you guys in Thyatira, who do not hold, uh, this phrase is important, the deep things, the teachings of the deep things of Satan. Th that is a heavy weight uh, in the description that Jesus is saying about the teaching of this woman Jezebel. False teaching is no joke. 
right? Jesus calls it the deep things of Satan. It's a pretty heavy self-explanatory phrase, uh, but let me expand on it a bit. There are a few things. Let me just say this. There's a few things within the Orthodox Christian faith that we all can disagree on and we argue about. And we have theological conferences and we talk about it, um, right? Like things like what's exactly the point of communion. People have been kind of going back and forth on that for a while or what baptism, right? We have some churches who baptize infants, some that don't, you know, some that only use like running water, some that use a swimming pool, some that use a little super soaker, some sprinkle it in your face, right? There's all these different ways that we, we baptize people. Um, there's, there's different end time stuff, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that every teacher constantly has to get everything 100% right uh, with how, what we're going to know in eternity, or he's teaching the deep things of Satan. That's not what Jesus is saying. But there, so there's teaching that's a little bit wrong, but well-intentioned, and we all don't know, and we can argue about that stuff. And then there's false teaching. By false teaching, we mean this is stuff that's so off that it's actually damaging people's faith, or it's teaching, also just teaching that's intentionally wrong. It's a teacher who stands up and knows the truth, but for selfish reasons, teaches something else. And so in our day, right, we have the prosperity gospel. You can have money, and you can have Christ, and that's what he wants to bless you and give you a Rolls Royce. And I'm proof because I have my own private jet. Right? That's the prosperity gospel. Or we have the legalism of much of American Christianity, where... Uh, you know, here's all these extra rules that we're going to make up, and if you don't follow those rules, then you're not really holy, right? Oh, I just realized I forgot I didn't take my hat off, right? That's one of them, right? Is can you wear a hat inside of a church building? That's a cultural thing. It's not a biblical command. Or I think of um, we have the liberal mainline denominations who are denying the authority of Scripture. That's false teaching. Uh, in much of our day, we have other like. Um, other religions, right? Mormonism that teaches one day you can become God or Jehovah's Witnesses who teach that Jesus is a created brother of uh, Satan or the Seventh-day Adventist Church who have some wacky beliefs about their founder, uh, Ellen G. White, and how her prophecies are equal with Scripture, stuff like that. That's, that stuff is on the side of what Jesus calls here the deep things of Satan. Right? It's the same as this lady saying that you can practice this sexual immorality, this idolatry, and you can follow Jesus. And so Jesus takes this false teaching so seriously. It's like how he said, <clears throat> you know, it'd be better than to cause somebody else to sin. It'd be better if you just tied a giant rock around your neck and jumped into the ocean. You know, it's kind of the same thing, right, is intentionally false teaching. Jesus calls it the deep things of Satan. And he says, I'm going to throw this lady into a sickbed. But... Not all of you followed this idiot, is what he says. So some of you have been faithful. You've continued to be faithful to gospel. You've continued to serve your king. You've continued to stay away from these idolatrous practices, no matter what the cost. So while these other people in your church are participating in the local business, and they're raking it in, and they're all doing their prosperity gospel, you guys have been faithful. And so Jesus says, I'm not adding anything else to what you're already doing. You're already doing it. Just keep doing it until I come. Again, this is a church living in the Great Tribulation, and the only hope that they have in that tribulation is the gospel. And the next step in the gospel story is that Jesus is coming back. And so this is where our hope lives. It's where our hope comes from, the, the return of our king. Uh, and we know that when he comes, he's going to bring the full kingdom of God to this earth. And so putting our faith and our hope in him really does change the way that we live in the city of San Francisco, the same way it changed the way that this church lived in their city of Thyatira. And so Jesus challenges them, look, guys, just hold on to me, hold fast. And now that here's the promise for those of you who do. Verse 26, he says, to the one who conquers and keeps my word until the end, to him 
I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, uh, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let, the spirit, let him hear what the Spirit says uh, to the churches. So to the one who conquers uh, and keeps my works until the end. Again, like I said earlier, remember, when it talks about conquering, it's not talking about winning. It's not talking about becoming the most powerful and winning through conquering like that. It's about love and service uh, as the world around us is trying uh, to crush you. And he says, if you do, here's what you're going to get. Here's the rewards. The first is you're going to receive authority over the nations. And so right now we live in what the Bible calls the already but not yet. Jesus has come and he's established his earth on earth. Uh, his kingdom on earth, but it's not fully realized. And when he comes back the second time, that kingdom is going to be fully realized. And um, is this the new heavens and earth or millennium? That's all other revelation stuff that we don't have time to get into. But the idea is clear that when Jesus comes and he brings his kingdom here, his people are going to rule that kingdom with him. And then this is the most important part, though. The ruling is cool, right? We're going to get to rule with Jesus. But he says, I'm going to give him the morning star. In Revelation, I don't know if I have a slide for this. I don't. In Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus specifically says that he says, "I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David," which is a really weird phrase, by the way. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So, do you see that when Jesus says here, "I will give you the morning star," what is he talking about? He's talking about himself. This is the ultimate reward, is union, perfect union with Christ. It's the whole point of the Bible, is that we lost this union with Christ in Genesis 3, and we get it back at the end of Revelation. And so that's what the, uh, um, the gospel is all about, is how in Genesis 1, we were created in this perfect union with God Almighty. Genesis 3, we broke it. And now all of us are trying to live our lives and find ways to fill the hole that is there because we are not in a perfect relationship with God. And so we try all sorts of things, right? We try jobs and money, success, fame, hobbies. Um, I want to give you, the, if you look in, anybody following along in the Bible app, right? There's a picture of Matt Damon in there, and you're probably wondering, why is there a picture of Matt Damon in here? Um, uh, I'll tell you the story real quick. Um, I was watching this interview. That picture is from the interview. There's a a British talk show called The Graham Norton Show. And Matt Damon was on The Graham Norton Show a few years ago. And the interview, uh, Graham Norton was asking him, hey, aren't you really... He was asking about what was it like winning an Oscar at such a young age. In his mid-20s, uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck won for Goodwill Hunting, right? How do you like them apples? Great movie. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so they won for writing this. And he was asking him, what do you think about, uh, you know, what was it like to win at such a young age? Um, and Matt Damon's answer uh, had some swears in it. If you go watch it later, don't be mad at me. But basically what he said was, uh, look, I'm glad I didn't spend my whole life chasing something that I realize is not going to fulfill me at all. That was a pretty wise answer. He's like, I'm really glad I didn't get to 80 years old and realize I chased this my whole life and get it at 80 and realize how empty it is. And so what Matt Damon does now is he works a lot with a group called, uh, he founded an, a nonprofit organization called Water.org. And it's a charity that does a lot of good all over the world, giving people access to clean water and sanitation and that sort of stuff. But here's the thing. At some point, I think he re he's going to realize that as wonderful and as good as water.org is, that's also not going to fulfill him. 
And I think he might chase that for 80 years and get to the end and realize that also did is, I don't want to put it down, it's a pretty amazing thing, this organization and what they do and how they change lives all over the world. But that also, doing good works, that's also not going to fulfill him. And this is the gospel. What the gospel says is the only thing that's going to fulfill Matt Damon and you and me and anybody else is to be in that perfect relationship with Christ. To be in that union with Christ. To, be, to receive at the end times that bright morning star. And so heading there is our only hope. And so that's our letter to the church in Thyatira. And so what we have here in this letter uh, is a woman who, what she's teaching is compromise for economic sake. She's praying on people's fears and their economic, uh, their just want for economic stability. And participating in these guilds and this cult religion probably made life for this church a lot easier. And so you can see the appeal then of somebody who comes in and says, you can follow Jesus and you can be a part of one of these guilds. And now our world has all kinds of narratives also that are incompatible with the gospel. And navigating through our world with those narratives all around us, navigating through our culture and staying faithful to Jesus is really, really tricky. I hate it when preachers get up here and just say, here's what you need to do. And it's really easy and you just need to do it. It's not. It's very hard and we're going to spend our whole lives together as a church struggling to get this right. And so what do we need? I'm going to give you two things that we need as a church and you need individually. The first thing is we need wisdom from above. James 1.5 says that you can ask God for wisdom and he wants to give it to you. So how often do you really pray for wisdom? Right? Do you ask God for wisdom? Again, wisdom, just saying real quick, is not just me giving you a list of do's and don'ts. If you do this, God will bless you, and if you don't, this. Wisdom is you having a discerning and godly heart, completely empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, where you're, you know the most godly way to do the most godly thing. That's what wisdom is, doing the most godly thing the most godly way. Right? It's, it's figuring out how can I be faithful to Jesus and navigate my way through this situation that will bring him the most glory. And so we gain wisdom by uh, showing up at church and with a humble heart soaking up the gospel as people like me stand up and teach. We gain wisdom by learning from each other. And one of the most important ways we gain wisdom is together as a church in our groups. And this is why when we start this new church together, one of the biggest things we're going to be doing is gathering in our missional families. And uh, I'm out of time almost, but I wanted to do sort of a little pitch here for these missional families. Um, and maybe I'll just kind of jump this into next week. But the idea is Sunday mornings is not all we're going to do together. We're also going to be broken off into our little groups. They're kind of like really intense small groups because we're going to be able to speak into each other's lives and help each other become more wise. The second thing is, so the first thing is we need to ask for wisdom. And the second thing is that we need to keep our eyes on the bright morning star. Right? As we live this way and we try to live with wisdom, we need to remember what it's all about. We need to keep our eternal gospel focus. We need to remember the gospel, that Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom here on earth, and we live for that kingdom now. But his kingdom is not the full kingdom. He's coming back to establish his rule on earth. And at some point, we're going to be sitting in a coffee shop, or you're going to be at work, or whatever it is, and Jesus really is going to come back. And when that happens, his people are going to be gathered together. And we're going to be perfectly united, perfectly satisfied in him. And when we keep that reality in the front of our minds at our jobs, with our homes, our family, our friends, our neighbors, it is going to be a lot easier to stay away from these false narratives, to not fall prey to these false narratives. It's going to be a lot easier to shake off the idols and the things that won't ultimately satisfy us. But it will also empower us to do a lot of the good things 
like the water water.org kind of stuff, we'll be empowered to do that sort of stuff because we know this thing doesn't have to fulfill me because I have Jesus over here and he is what does ultimately fulfill me. And so we need to, as a church, at the beginning I said there are some things we need to emulate and some things we need to not emulate. Here, what we need to emulate is this, that our church needs to be completely about Jesus, obsessed with Jesus and obsessed with his gospel. Right? Do you guys remember, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, uh, like... Uh, Beatlemania. Remember Beatlemania? Yeah, anybody? All right, I was not there for that. You know, like the Beatles walking out of a building and the crowd's just screaming when they see Ringo. You know, a 16, 17-year-old goes with fainting or whatever. Or more recently, right, you've got the Beliebers, right, Justin Bieber uh, and all the – it's the same thing. It just keeps happening over and over again. This is – the word Christian just means like little Christ. Somebody who is obsessed with Jesus the way that those Beatlemaniacs or whatever, the Beliebers, were obsessed with Justin Bieber. That's what we need to be. We need to be – or like I'm obsessed with the Niners, you know, like uh, or the Warriors or the Giants or whatever. That's what we need to do. We need to be those kind of people who walk around and everybody goes, oh, those are the followers of Jesus. Those guys are obsessed with Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. But here's the thing. The world is pounding us with these false narratives that say, guys, take your eyes off of the morning star. And so we, his people, need to resist those narratives. We need to stay focused on Jesus. Now, how do we do that? Well, I'll give you one more awesome way. Uh, by taking communion. And that's my slick transition into communion, right? 